Well, welcome again. I'm so thankful that you're worshiping with us this morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, you can turn to Isaiah 55. And if uh, you need a copy, there should be a copy in the pew in front of you. It should be page 615. And while you turn there, just a, a reminder of where we are in the book of Isaiah. We're taking a break from John for just a week, and Isaiah is a prophet that's writing to the people of God, to the Israelites, as they are in exile. They're in Babylon. And they're no doubt wondering, after being exiled, what does this God have to say to us? What, how is he going to interact with us now? And Isaiah tells them of God's intentions towards them. What we're going to see this morning is that God's promise of grace, his, his gracious offerings are a promise of life itself. He invites us to come. He invites us to come to him and let him shower us with his love. But in order to see this, we need his help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for, you truly do call us to come to you in all of our shame, in all of our filth. You aren't embarrassed by us. You aren't deceived of what we're really like. You simply call us to come. You promise to clean us. You promise to make us new, to change us. And so, Lord, this morning we pray, help us to respond to that call. Open our eyes, open our ears, in Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 55, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast and sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. A leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. To our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, bringing, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. I want to start by asking a question, uh, and it's one that I think we could all relate to on some level. What would happen if people ever actually discovered what you were really like? Behind the the mask that you put forth, the, the fakeness that we might display, what would people do? Would they run away? Would they leave? Tom Hanks recently had an interview where he describes what it's like to be an actor, and and this is what he says. He says, no matter what we've done, there comes a point where you think, how did I get here? When are they going to discover that I am, in fact, a fraud and take everything away from me? It's a high-wire act that we all walk, and there are days when I know that 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to have to deliver some degree of emotional goods, and if I can't do it, then I'm going to have to fake it. And if I have to fake it, that means they might catch me at faking it. And if they catch me at faking it, well, then it's just going to be doomsday. And I love that quote. I love that honesty by Tom Hanks because I, too, am tempted to think that if God catches me, if he sees me in the ways that I fake it, if he he were to see who I really am, that he would want nothing to do with me. I fear that at some point God's going to look up and he's going to see that I'm a fake, that I'm unworthy of his love. I fear that high wire act that I'm going to fall. And then it's just going to be doomsday. The Israelites, much like me, much much like ourselves, like Tom Hanks, would have been tempted to believe that they were not good enough. That they would need to fake it if God was ever going to accept them. That that perhaps, maybe in Babylon, maybe there, they could, they could earn enough power, enough prestige. Maybe, maybe they could earn enough wealth. Maybe they could become moral enough or religious enough. And maybe then God would take them back. Maybe then God would accept them. And I think if we're honest, many of us can relate to that feeling, to the idea that, that we have to do something to get God's eye. That we have to do something to get him to notice us. We struggle to to put aside our pride, our self-righteousness, our shame, and and simply come to Jesus. But because God is gracious, we can come to him. God responds to our our fears, our our self-doubt, our shame, our sin, by instructing us to simply come, come to him, And so this morning, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that God's grace, it it calls us, it comforts us, and it changes us. So first, because God is gracious, he calls us to himself. And Isaiah wants, wants us to see right off the start that we are dealing with an extremely gracious God. You see this in the invitation that he makes to the people. Look, this is, this is essentially the altar call of the Old Testament. God is telling them, come. Come forward, come to me. Look in verse 1 and 2, he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And I want you to notice three things about this call that God makes to his people. First, God deals with their longings. I mean, look at the language that he uses here. He's promising the very best to those that come. He's promising them not only the things that they need just for for survival, he's promising them rich provision for their longings. He's promising them water 
But even more than that, milk and honey, the richest of food. He's doing this by using language of longings, longings of thirst, to communicate that this is a deep and desperate need that he is willing to fulfill, that he's willing to meet. But it isn't just the fulfillment of these longings that we see in this call. Look further in verse 3. He says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. God's, God's invitation, his, his call to his people here. It's, it's not simply that he's calling them to come and have their longings fulfilled. He's, he's calling them to come and be included in the covenant with David. He's calling them to come and be included in the kingdom that he's building. He's calling them to be under the rule of the Messiah. These are grand promises that he's making here. But lastly, note the cost of this. Note the cost of this banquet and of this this covenant inclusion that God, God speaks of here. He says, buy without money and without price. Now what an odd way to just simply say that something is free, isn't it? I mean, he could simply just say, come, it's, it's on us. But he doesn't. It raises an important question. Why would the author say it in such a, an odd way as if there's purchasing, but it's free? As if there's an expense, but it's already been met. It raises questions of, of can you trust this offer from this God? Is this too good to be true? Because it sounds too good to be true. It, it feels too good to be true. Isaiah's telling you, though, you can come and you can buy without price. You can purchase without money because someone has already done it for you. Somebody has already provided the things that you don't have. Somebody has already met, met the cost of the expense. And who would that be? Well, it's no wonder that Isaiah 55 follows the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the prophet tells us, Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's the suffering servant that provides this banquet for you. He's calling to you. He's calling to you to come. He's calling to you to come to this meal and come under his kingdom, to come under his rule. He's pleading with you. It's urgent. Respond. Respond to him and come to him. And this call, it it tells you that you need not wait. It tells you not to bring anything. God is saying if you thirst to come and the only thing that you need is need itself. And so I wonder, are you needy this morning? Are you needy? This is, this is a central idea of Christianity, and it's one that if, if we don't grasp, we risk missing out on these promises. We risk missing out on, on the good blessings that God has us for us. It's, it's this, that Christians are needy people. Christians are people that realize their need. And yet I think we, we desperately struggle with this idea. For a number of reasons, but for one, it's because the world doesn't work this way. For example, this past year with Mary Virginia and I both working with two kids and a dog, our house was a wreck, and we realized this, and we realized we needed help. 
we needed help cleaning. We needed somebody to come and help clean our house. And so we hired somebody to come, and it was incredible. You would get home from work, and, and the house would just smell so fresh, and everything would be clean and spotless. And so this person would come about once a month. But an interesting thing started to happen. About every night before they would come, me and Mary Virginia, we would look around the house and we would think, oh no. People cannot know that we actually live like this. We would see our laundry piling up and we would see clothes that needed to be put away and toys that were out of buckets. We would realize that we had not vacuumed anything in the last month and we would panic. And we would do what anybody would do. We would clean our house before we had somebody come and clean our house. And you see the irony, don't you? And what I want to suggest is that we actually, we do this. We interact this way with God. We think that if God could see the dirty floorboards of your soul, that he wouldn't want anything to do with you. That he wouldn't want anything to do with you at all. Some of us, perhaps most of us, even those of us that grew up here in church or at other churches, we're the, we're, we are the worst at this. We think that need was something that got us in the door, but we graduated from it. It was an entry fee. It was a cover charge to become a Christian, but it's something that we no longer need. And we spend our whole lives trying to be people that are not needy. We're running from this gracious God, and we're running from him Many of us to our own goodness, our own success, our own wealth, whatever it might be, and we think that these are the things that are going to buy food and water. These are the things that are going to provide for the longings of our souls. We think we have to fake it to stay in his presence. But secondly, our God tells us that that's not the case. We need to see that because God is gracious, not only does he call us and offer us these grand promises, but he comforts us, comforts us with the compassion that he shows us. Remember where we are. The the Israelites have blown it. They have totally failed. If you go read Kings this afternoon, you'll see what I'm talking about. They've committed idolatry. They've worshipped other gods. They've oppressed their neighbors. They've stolen from people. They've committed adultery. For over 500 years, they did these things. And it's likely that in exile, they carry enormous amounts of shame. Shame, they're just longing for comfort. Isaiah recognizes this aspect of human existence. Look at at verse 2. He asks, why do you spend money for that which is not bread? and labor for that which does not satisfy. Isaiah knows that not not only do we struggle to, to turn and come to this gracious God, but while we're not doing that, we're going to other things as well. We're running to other things. We're looking for anything that might bring that satisfaction, that comfort that our souls desperately crave. In the words of, of Calvin, our hearts are idle factories. Or you, perhaps... A little more well-known, in the words of Bono, we still haven't found what we're looking for. And it makes you wonder, why would God be so gracious to these people? Like, they have, they have utterly embarrassed him for 500 years in the eyes of the nations surrounding them. 
They've allowed wickedness and unrighteous things happen to happen. They've, they've, they've been a part of that. Why would he be so gracious? And he tells us in, in verse 6 through 7, he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I want you, I want you to see that God desires to comfort you. That he, he longs to do that, to pardon you abundantly. To show you mercy. Isaiah 30, 18 says that the Lord waits to be gracious to you. That he exalts himself to show you mercy. And I wonder, is that your conception of God? That he longs to show you mercy. That he longs to pardon you abundantly for the things that you've done. Is that how you think about him? Jesus tells us in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. All those who labor, who are continually working, striving, just trying to make it, and those that are heavy laden, that are burdened by the world, by the things that they've done, or by the oppressive forces that that operate within this world, come to him. For he longs to show you grace. He longs to pardon you abundantly and comfort you. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey, he tells a story about a girl from Michigan. And this this teenage girl, she has a very uh, strained relationship with her parents. And eventually it reaches a boiling, boiling point and she yells at them, I hate you. And she runs away. She's frustrated by the things that they won't let her do. She's, she thinks that she knows what is best for her life and so she runs away. She's had enough. She winds up in Detroit and it, it's there that she meets a man who takes her in not to, not to comfort her, not to protect her, but to use and abuse her. As he gets her addicted to, to drugs and he, he uses her for prostitution. Yet still, for about a year, she's, she's getting everything she thought she wanted. The life she thought would make her happy. The things she thought would bring satisfaction. But after about a year, she gets sick. and She gets thrown to the side. Out on her own for the first time, she's barely able to provide food for herself. And it's there in a a cold night in Detroit that she finally reaches the breaking point and she's living on the streets in a box and she she suddenly thinks, why did I leave? Why did I run away? And so she musters up the courage and she calls home. She calls home three times and each time she gets the answering machine and the last time she finally leaves a message. And she says, Mom, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm getting on a bus and I'm coming home and if you would take me back and meet me at the station, I would love that. But if not, I'm just going to keep going and I'm going to go to Canada or wherever else I can get. And so you can imagine the anxiety as she takes a long bus ride back home. 
And on that bus, she's, she's wondering, she's, she's thinking, was this a mistake? What if, what if they were out of town and they didn't get the message? What if they got the message and they don't want me back? What would I have to say? What kind of apology would I have to rehearse? You can imagine the anxiety building as the bus pulls into the bus station. She looks in the mirror and makes herself look presentable because she's changed so much for the past year. She looks so different. And she gets off the bus and she walks into the terminal. She's overwhelmed with emotion. She sees 50 or so people, friends and neighbors, uncles and aunts, brothers and sisters and cousins, all wearing party hats, all standing underneath a banner that says, Welcome home. And as she falls to her knees crying, it's her father that runs out and grabs her. You can imagine as she's sitting there rehearsing the, the apology that she'd worked on for so long, she says, Dad, I'm sorry, and he says, hush, you're going to be late for your party. My friends, this is how Jesus longs to comfort you. He longs to show you such compassion. I know some of you are thinking, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things that I've said, the ways that I've yelled at my children or my spouse, you don't know the ways that I've manipulated my coworkers. You don't know who I've slept with or where my mind goes in the quiet hours of the night. You don't know the things I've seen, the images of past relationships that still haunt me. I feel so unworthy. I feel so full of shame. And you feel stuck, right? It's that feeling of shame that, that haunts you and you can't help but continuing in your ways, because there is some sense of comfort that you get, yet it's fleeting. Like a wave from the ocean, it just crashes time and again, you're stuck. And Jesus says, come to me. Let me have compassion on you. Let me comfort you with my love. Let me pardon you, because that's what I love to do. I love pardoning sinners just like you. God invites us to himself. He, he tells us to bring nothing. He, he offers his grace free of charge because he's a God of compassion. But more than just offering us to come, more than just comforting us with his compassion, he also, he also promises to change us. And so lastly, God's promise to change us. And, and we see what God's promises are for those that repent, that turn to him, that run to him, this passage is full of promises for us. They're all rooted in God's grace. Look at verse 3. He promises life for those that respond. An everlasting covenant. In verse 7, as we just said, he promises to pardon you abundantly. In verse 12, he promises to lead you with, with joy and with peace. And in verse 13, he promises an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. These are massive promises for the people of God. The promises of, of change from, from despair to joy, from war to peace, from thorns to cypress trees, promises from, from death to life 
for you. Now there's a sense where if you've grown up like me, perhaps you've grown somewhat cynical of people talking about change. And there are a number of reasons why that might be the case. Perhaps it's because you have failed a number of times, as I have, to, to change through the promises that you've made either to other peoples or to God, where you've, you've said, I'll change, I will change, I will change, I will change. But you haven't. Or perhaps it's from the ways that other people have failed you where people have made grand promises of change, that they're going to stop doing something, and they didn't. They disappointed. But what I want you to see is that this passage, it doesn't tell us that we are going to change ourselves and then God is going to take us. No, God is saying, I am going to change you. I'm going to bring it about. I'm going to make it happen. God is saying that this change is going to happen, that life will be given, that the joy and peace will occur because the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ Himself, is going to be the one that leads you and changes you. And we see this in verse 10. Look at the assurance that Isaiah gives. He compares the promise of change to God's Word and rain. That just as the rain goes and it it waters the fields and it provides food for people, it accomplishes that which it is set out to do, God's Word does that. It accomplishes its goals. It brings about its purpose. Just think about creation, right? That God, God spoke and it happened. It was imminent. It occurred. Why? Because He had commanded it. God's Word accomplishes its purpose. It accomplishes that which it set out to do. Real life, real change is found in him. He doesn't doesn't wait for you to change before taking you in. No, he promises that he is going to fix the curse, sin and death, as far as the curse is found. How do we know? How do we know this? Because we know how the story ends. The book of Revelation ends with Jesus on the throne, and what is he saying? He's saying, behold, I have made all things new. Death and sin are no more. Christian, isn't that what you long for? Isn't that what you hope for? Isn't that what you want? This grace that that calls us to new lives, God promises to give us life from himself. And all of this is being done as a sign that God is at work. He's assured us that if we respond, if we come to him, he will bring about change. But this doesn't mean that we get to be passive in that, as if we get to sit in an armchair and just wait, well, I guess God will change me today. Maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. No, we know from his word that we're we're active participants in his change. As Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we need to see, we need to recognize that this changed life that Isaiah is telling us about, it's all rooted in our first point. It's all rooted in realizing that you're in need. It's all rooted in realizing that repentance isn't something you do when you become a Christian. No, it is where you live as a Christian. The life of the believer is found in repentance. It's found in abandoning the idols that we love and cleave to. It's found in feeling the thirst of our souls every day and taking that thirst to God. And there's a sense 
that I do want to warn you that a changed life is not, not necessarily an easy life. In fact, change most definitely means that something's going to die. This call for change is a call to death. It's, as Diedrich Bonhoeffer says, that the call of the cross of Jesus himself is to come and to die. And that's the call of the Christian. So there's a sense where change is going to feel like death. It's, it's going to feel like you are on the high wire act when God's changing you. It's going to feel like death because you're going to feel exposed. You're going to feel your need. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel like death to admit that you're having an affair, that you're addicted to pornography or drugs. It's going to feel like death to say those things to somebody, that you're spending money for that which is not bread, that you're going to other things for the longings of your soul. But the only place of real change is found in the comfort of the God you're coming to. And it's going to feel like death to, to stop cheating in your profession, to stop cutting the corners to get ahead. It's going to feel like death to admit that you're, you're greedy. But the only place of life is actually coming to him as you realize you're being made content in his love. My friends, it's going to feel like death to admit that you despise others, that you hate other people, even in your subtle actions, but... It's only here where you see your sin for what it actually is that real change occurs. And this is the place where thorns become cypress trees, where they bud and flower. And it's going to feel like death to to admit that you're trying to make a name for yourself, either in your career or your social places, whatever it might be. It's going to feel like death to admit that you gossip and you slander as much as you can to get control and power so that you can maneuver your way and get where you want to go It's going to feel like death. But it's only when we stop trying to make a name for ourselves and accept the name that he has given you, the real life begins. God's promise of change is for those that respond to this call, that become empty-handed, that come in their need and they live in their need. It's in that place that that real life is found. It's in that place where you realize your need, where you have finally realized how unworthy you are. It's in that place where you're at the end of yourself The change can happen and he promises to bless you. Why? Because you're finally letting Jesus work on you. You're finally letting him carve you and mold you into the image. I'll close with this. I'm, I'm reminded in this passage the woman in John 4 that Jesus meets at the well. We could easily describe this woman as already falling from the high wire act. Her doomsday had already happened. She was the scandal of the town. She was the girl that no one wanted. And what happens? She meets this king of grace who calls her to himself. She meets this king of grace who who promises to give her water for her soul, to meet her longings. She meets this king of grace who promises to comfort her with his compassion. And it changes her. What does she do? She runs 
And she says, come, meet the man who told me all that I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? He promises to do the same for us if we would but come. Come all who are thirsty and in need. And that's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are weary from this world. We're weary from our striving. We're weary from the burdens that we carry. Lord, we, we want to respond. Lord, would you let us? Would you call us? Would you remind us of your intention to comfort us, Lord, that we might find some comfort for our, our souls? Father, we, we ask that you would change us you would hold our hand as you walk us through the places that need change. And we know that that's going to feel like death. We know that that's not going to be easy. Lord, would you change us, though? Lord, we, we know that it's worth it because in those places of change, we get you. We get your compassion and your grace, Lord. Would you do this? In Jesus' name, amen. In light of what we've heard, let's stand and sing.